We are live on Facebook. Okay, well, you say it's so, then it's so. It sounds louder than normal. Here we are again, February 10th, 2019. Uh, lecture discussion number 52. I should put that on the board, huh? I'll tell you why in a second. It's number 52 today, for those of you following on the vast Internet audience. January 27th was lecture number 51, which I apparently, in the confused fog that accompanies me now in my dotage, I labeled as January 20th, lecture number 50. So, those of you trying to follow along, I make it more difficult. I caused two distinct January 20ths, number 50s. Uh, the one of the January 20ths, the second January 20th, was supposed to be the first January 27th, number 51. There is no Jan second January 27th, number 51, because today is February 10th, number 52, or so I'm told. I'm glad I could clear all that up. <laughs> They send me letters. You know they do. They tell me uh, uh, very uncomplimentary things about my agingness. Okay, the pagan holiday Super Bowl Zabub has concluded, and we're back to our definition of normal, which, of course, is a subjective opinion, benefiting ourselves, as is the common predisposition. But therefore, for the foreseeable future, we're going to be forging ahead with our usual enthusiasm and pleasantness, both relative and subjective terms as well, as everyone knows. We left off last time at Genesis 14. I can erase number 52. That's just there for everybody who has figured out they don't have to come here. They can get it all on the Internet now. We left off at Genesis 14. It's hard to take attendance in this new age. That, of course, is Melchizedek, Abraham, and Satan. That's also, we went, uh, we got there because of 2 Kings 1 and other things, because that's Elijah, the consuming fire, and the three captains. 2 Kings 6 through 8, chapters 6 through 8, that's Elijah. And the king and the woman who is claiming to have eaten a, a baby, her own baby, the woman who is hiding and the assassin that comes to kill Elijah. And all of that, of course, brings clarity. All of that gets you to understand the mysteries of Acts 5, which, as you know, is Ananias and Sapphira, Peter and the young men that carry and bury and wrap Ananias and Sapphira, not in that order. I have that out of order. Now, but my point being is that this is how you solve that. And if you've ever read Acts 5 and you don't know what it means, then you have to find the Old Testament elements. I could have easily have added 2 Kings 2, which is uh, Elisha, the 42 young men that were killed by the two female bears. Obviously, the questions immediately, why 42 young men? What do they have in relationship to the young men of Acts 5? Because they do. Why did they yell at Elisha, go up, you bald head? Elisha was not bald. 
That's 2 Kings 2, uh, 14 through 25, 19 through 25. Bald head is not a representative or not a reference to his physical features. It is a reference to leprosy. So when you understand why they are yelling leprosy at, at Elisha, then it begins to clear up. Go up has a resurrection implications. It has implications to the altar of God. It also has implications as well to Elijah, who had just gone up, as you might know. And somewhere there exists uh, my lecture in the vast uh, ether on 2 Kings uh, 19 through 25. And there's no time to revisit it today, but it also belongs here as an explanation of Ananias and Sapphira. And there are many others. Those are just the ones that I have brought up that I think are the most pertinent. So the point being, yea, a point is New Testament mysteries like Acts 5 have Old Testament relationships or similar events, if you will. Neglecting the Old Testament information that corresponds to the New Testament issue that you're facing, that's going to make sure that you're going to not understand. You're going to misstep here into the ditch you go rolling down the hill. If you follow the analogy, I have read many, many analyses, analyses, analysi. I had to go to speech therapy, as you know. Had they only realized that a can of cold doctor or, or doctor cold diet coke uh, would have solved all my problems back then given me the immunity that only aspartame can give you by the way. Ah. I've read, as I said, many analyses of Acts 5, and few, if any. I can remember none, frankly, but I'll say somewhere somebody has done it correctly. I just haven't found them yet. And I've, I've seen them compare. I, 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 ah, breaking down. I've never found one that compares Acts 5 to its Old Testament similarities. Just not happening. If the triangles are similar, the angles are congruent. You know that from 7th grade geometry class. It's basic geometric logic. For some reason, geometric proofs are ignored in theological circles. Get that? Circles? Geometry circles? Do I have to explain it? Apparently I do. Okay. Point being is that I I have similar situations here to this. Obviously I have to compare them. If I do, I'm going to figure out what this is. I'm going to figure out what the angles are. Angle A is similar it's going to be congruent to angle A if side A is, is similar to side A. It's just basic logic. For whatever reason, it's not in the church. And I don't ever understand it. Anyway, to attempt to draw uh, conclusions without gathering as much evidence as possible is futile, if not just foolish. I don't know what to say. I'm not saying you're wasting your time. You're not wasting your time, but you're not going anywhere. And you most likely will begin to think that Acts 5 is some simple thing about tithing, which, of course, it is not. But that's how you get to Genesis 14, because that's the first place tithing is mentioned in the Bible. 
In the case of the patterns of Genesis 14, 2 Kings 1, 2 Kings 2, 2 Kings 6, 2 Kings 8, Ahab, Jezebel are also here. They're not on the board. The beheading of John the Baptist, all of that provide information to what's going on in Acts 5. If you will, the pattern is brought up in all of those circumstances. The Bible is intrinsic. It's essential nature. It's constitution. It is relentlessly, overwhelmingly interconnected. And that is impossible for that to be. How many cells are in the human body? Do you know? Aren't you glad you came to eighth grade biology? It's probably sixth grade biology. There's 37, approximately 37 trillion cells in the human body. And all of them are interconnected. You can have a pain. Of course, pain is a mental property, right? Just like sight is a mental property. You may think. First thing you learn in philosophy class when you walk in is he will tell you there is no physical reality. And there's the old joke about uh, some guy went up to punch the professor in the face and say, there's your physical reality. But the professors of philosophy are correct. You feel pain in your mind. I can prove that to you by having you look at people that have lost limbs. They still feel the limb. In fact, the therapy for feeling that limb is to give them the mirror image of this limb that shows that limb. And then they can remove the pain that way that they're feeling of a limb that doesn't, isn't attached to them. You feel pain in your sleep. You see in your sleep. Those are all mental properties. It's a neurological uh, situation. It's chemistry. And electricity, your brain is a chemical electrical system that has to be interpreted by your mind. I've said this thousands of times. The Bible has 30, I'm sorry, the human body has 37 trillion cells and they're all interconnected, every single cell. How many humans have been in existence since the flood? How many were at the flood? How many were killed in the flood? How many are there now? How many animals are there? How many animals have there always been? How many stars in the universe? I can do that for you. Well, I should make sure I do it right because somebody's going to call me up and say, Hey, you're an idiot. They always do. Can't stop them. There's 200 billion stars per galaxy. Uh, my exponent is as big as my tin. 200 billion stars per galaxy. What's the next question? How many galaxies? They used to think there were 10 billion galaxies. They don't think that anymore. Do you know how many galaxies they say they are? Two trillion galaxies. And they're probably wrong. Probably far more than that. So you can do the math there. You have 2 trillion galaxies and 200 billion stars per galaxy. Use your phones. How many stars do I have? 200 sextillion stars. That is 2 followed by 24 zeros. How big a phone do you have? And every single star has a gravitational element to it and they are all interconnected. 
Whoever wrote the Bible and created living cells and stars and souls designed, I'm sorry, whoever designed all the living cells and created them and the stars and the souls wrote the Bible and he designed his word to be impossible to duplicate, mathematically ridiculously interconnected. So you have to approach scripture that way. You have to approach scripture with the understanding that nothing in it is isolated. It's what we were talking earlier. I might have been, I can't remember who it is. There's some principle of separation that I can get Someone, I can get myself connected to whatever, an, um, uh, an entertainer. Why would I want to be in any way connected to the dumbest people in the whole country? I don't know why I'd do that, an actor. But I can. Let's, uh, let's just say that, uh, let's say the uh, President of the United States, I know somebody that's in Seattle. That person knows somebody that's in Washington, D.C., that person knows somebody whose child goes to the school where the president's child goes. And that person then can get, I can get to the president really fast. They call that uh, human separation. How many degrees, how many steps to find somebody, anybody in the world. And it's relatively uh, a small number in the sense it's less than ten. The point being is you need to approach Scripture with uh, that kind of a metaphor, analogy, if you will. That's a redundancy. Nothing in the Bible is isolated. Everything communicates and affects something else. That is the key to Acts 5. For those of you who have been concerned about it, some of you on the Internet. Down the road, and maybe not too far, far, I will demonstrate that the new city of Jerusalem, Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem that comes down, it descends. It's coming down. So as soon as I say that it is the new city is descending, that's Proverbs 30, verse 4, that's John 3, 12, that's Genesis 28, 12, the descending of the city of Jerusalem in Revelation 21 immediately connects to those three. The new city of Jerusalem explains physical death. That means it ties to Genesis 3. I'll be able very easily to explain to you that this descending of the new city of Jerusalem, the fact that it exists, how it is designed, is a statement about physical death. Just as one example. I'll do that here relatively soon, as I said, in the next couple of weeks. God says of himself that he is a still, small voice, which really means in the Bible, literally, a whispering voice. 1 Kings 19.12 He is a quiet brook. Psalms 23.1-4 Who's the clanging bell? In the Bible. It's humans are clanging bells. We're the clanging bells. 1 Corinthians 13.1 We're the idiots. He whispers, we scream our lungs out like fools. That's how it is. That's how we're described. The contemporary church of now... The church age, the final church age, Revelation 3.16, I believe, as you know, firmly, I'm, I'm so confident of it, I'm almost arrogant. Okay, I am arrogant. I believe that this is it. This church age, what I'm watching, Revelation 3.16, the vomit church is prevailing today. And it's filled to the brim with self-attention-seeking, clanging, validation-seeking bells. Screaming and beating their bells as loud as they can. Look at me. 
and they ascribe that characteristic of their own their own proclivities. They they ascribe their proclivity proclivities to the character of God. That's not just foolish and wrong; it's blasphemous. And they demand that he demonstrate himself to them, that he perform when they so require him to. That again is blasphemous. And when he does not respond, they lie and they declare that he has, in fact, responded to them, even though there is absolutely no evidence that that is true. Ezekiel 13 has come. Again. First thing you need to do when you go shopping for a church is read Ezekiel 13. And then see if the church you're attending is doing that. That's for you folks on the, on the internet more than anything else. You ask me all the time, how can I find a good church? Well, go to Ezekiel 13 and find one that has none of that in it. Go to Revelation 3.16 and find a church that has none of that in it. God is the whisperer. That's what he says. How easy is it to hear a whisperer at my age? I don't hear whispering very well. Hearing a whisperer is not easy. You have to pay attention. You have to be really quiet to hear a whisperer. Why does he call himself a whisperer? Why does he whisper? Whispering connects directly to our existence. We have been given existence by him. He whispers because he has given us existence. The issue of Genesis 3 is, do we truly have existence? Well, that's why he whispers. Am I going to answer that more than that today? I'm not. That's not the lecture. None of that was today. Today, it's a discussion on slavery. I got a request that while you're in Joel, why don't you do slavery? I don't know that they thought that Joel and slavery was connected, but it is. This is the topic today. Human slavery is what they mean, and we'll discuss that at a little bit of length here. Many in the atheistic community, they condemn the Bible for not repudiating slavery. And perhaps you remember, I concluded the 20th uh, January. This, I'm sorry, I can, I can think of it. I concluded the second January 20th lecture, number 50. So it's not the first January lecture of, tw- of 20th January, number 50. It's the second January 20th lecture, number 50. I asked this question. Why doesn't the Ten Commandments prohibit human slavery? And it was a trick question, as all my questions are. I could have asked Nespa, throw in a little French to show you that I can do crossword puzzles. Why doesn't the Ten Commandments prohibit animal slavery? The enslavement of animals by humanity. If you're going to talk about human slavery... Let's just talk about animal slavery. And there you go. Lecture is over. I solved the slavery problem right there. 
pretty much done now. Buffet time. Eh? Man in Genesis 1, 29 through 31 was to be God's representative on the earth. God's image is one aspect of God's image is his, is man's representation on the earth. Who was, who was being represented by Adam? Were there any other humans when God, when God said he is now our representative? There were only animals. And it was very good, not just good, very good. One of the first mysteries you can find in scripture. Very good. It was very good that man, or Adam, if you wish to call him Adam, was the federal head of the organic earth. Notice how I said that, because there are there's a mineral Eden and an organic Eden, and Adam is the federal head of the organic Eden. If you wish, he is the king of Eden. Who are his subjects? There are only animals. Immediately, the exalted position of Satan comes into play, doesn't it? Because he is the anointed cherub, uh, Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19, and he is declared to be the king of Eden, but it is not an organic Eden. It is a mineral Eden. He is, therefore, the representative of God there. So I have two representatives of God, don't I? Adam was in the likeness, the image of God, to the animals, the animal kingdom realm. Therefore, was Satan the image, the likeness of God to the angelic realm? There's your first question. Everyone who thinks yes, move to the right. Those of you who think no, go to the left. Never be on the left. That's where the goats are. Just a warning. Feel free to move. But what is the frame of observation as to who's left and who's right? We all have our own unique relativity. Frame of reference. That was just for fun. Again, it is very good that Adam is the likeness, the physical representative of the spiritual triune Godhead to the animals. How many it was goods are in Genesis? Just it was good. There's five. How many very goods are there? There's one. Next total of six. Guys, I know. I did that without a phone. I'm amazing. (laughs) It is very good that Adam is the likeness, the physical representative of God. And he is, and it says, it is very good that he is so. Very good. And there are five it's goods. It was very good is placed subsequent to the information regarding food. As you read it, the food for this physical organic earth Eden would be herbs and fruit. I don't know herb, but stop there. Herbs and fruit. So clearly very good has something to do. I know I must be tired today, huh? What's causing this or is it normal? Don't answer that. Is it hot in here? Okay, that's it. No, <laughs> it's not. no excuses at all. Obviously, and I submit that the food that comes immediately in proximity, dependency upon food was a revelation. That was something different. It's a departure. This creation that is now organic was distinct from the angelic. The living souls that are, that are in the physical realm are designed to eat food, breathe air, drink water. They must rest. They must absorb, absorb light. And if they don't, what happens to them? They die. Physically die. The angelic realm has no such limitations. 
So this is a significant change, this food thing. And it's called very good. And now, obviously, I could go flying around Genesis and Revelation as I am often so inclined again. And I'm going to resist it, actually. I really am. It's a true really. It's not a fake really. The dominion given to Adam, the representation of God on earth by Adam, the multiplying the food, all of that is very good. Ask why very good and not just it was good. Why is this one set out and and elevated to very good? Who wrote it? Who called it this? Whose words said very good? Whose voice? That's God. Does he know the difference between it was good and it was very good? Probably does. So ask why very good? Why does he call it this? It's different. It's not the same. You just say, well, I'm tired of just calling it. It was good. I think I'll just, I'll say, very good this time. Does he have a purpose? How complicated is it? What else does he ever call good? Go find all the times God calls something good. Start accumulating them. Is there any in the, any in the New Testament? Just asking. Ask why very good. Here, after the food and the image of Adam, the representation, the likeness that is Adam. Most assume, you can look it up if you wish, that the five most assumed by most, I mean the overwhelming majority of the theological community, they assume that uh, the five goods were now collected into a group of six, and he's calling the six together is very good. So they're good individually. And then when I add the six to it, then the collective becomes very good. That's what your typical analysis is. Uh, you can tell by my general demeanor that I think that that is incorrect. Uh, I think that it misses the meaning of very good completely. The problem, of course, is that the sixth day was not referred to as it was good, and then they were all collectively called it is very good. The sixth day is isolated in the sense it is a part, and it is called very good. It doesn't have an it it was good. It only has it was very good. Thus, the the very good, in my opinion, applies only to the sixth day creation of man in God's image and the food Keep in mind the typology of Christ. Adam is a prominent type of Christ. As soon as Adam is discussed in Genesis, you, you have to, you don't have to. I would recommend that you go to Romans 5.14. Because Adam is tied directly to Christ himself in the New Testament. He is a type, he is... He is illuminated, if you will. He's a prominent type of Christ. Romans 5.14, therefore, must equal Genesis 1.31. And there I am, interconnected again. If I want to understand why he's a type of Christ and why it is very good and what it has to do with food and herbs, then I need to... Look at 5.14 of Romans. Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type of Christ. 
So logically to me, I'm obviously suggesting that the very good is who? It's not a what, it's a who. Very good must be Christ. Jesus God, no hyphen. I am suggesting to repeat that very good is the picture of Christ that is displayed by Adam, the federal head, the only other federal head that has ever been besides Christ. Christ is the second federal head of humanity. Adam is the first federal head. Christ, of course, is God himself in the flesh, and that means that he is the invisible made visible, as the Bible tells us. Therefore, he is the ultimate image, is he not? The ultimate representation, because he is, in fact, the God. Jesus Christ is the very good. And all of that to make the point, yea, another point. That we are no longer experiencing the conditions of the Garden of Eden. Duh. Death is unceasing. It is rampant. Animals devour animals for food. Man devours animals for food. Man kills that which was entrusted to him. Mankind was given dominion to care, to serve, to nurture, to prosper the animals. Instead, man hunts them down and kills them and devours them, just as other animals do. I'm not trying to say that hunting is bad. I know that it it is a... Listen, I understand that the food supply has greatly changed since is in the uh, post-diluvian, in the, end of the sorry, post-flood stage. The earth is a fallen, corrupted, darkened shell of its original design. Suffering is everywhere. Death seems to rule this earth. And that, of course, is said perfectly. Death seems to rule. But it does not. In any event, God looks upon this earth and sees it as contaminated, infected, depraved. Wickedness is great and accelerating. The the hearts of men, again, are continually evil, set upon murder. It is unbelievable to me to see what New York State has done, and now Vermont, and now Massachusetts, with respect to killing The innocent. It's amazing. So we are, as I said, we are exponentially increasing our velocity towards uh, wickedness. Just exactly as the Bible predicts. How lucky is this book? And all of that is the context of a discussion on slavery. Slavery, at its basic form, is ownership. Ownership. Possessing a living being. I will possess a living being if I wish to be a slave owner. A living soul, possessing a living soul, is not how God created this world. It is the antithesis of how God created this world. You have choices in life. You can choose that which is free and that which is slave. And unfortunately, no one seems to know what... We are so upside down that we think freedom is slavery and slavery is freedom. 
There was a commercial on television or a statement by some uh, some actor of very low IQ. Why do I say actors have very low IQs? Why do I do it? It seems kind of uh, discriminatory and, and what's the other word I want? Condemnatory. And <sighs> the reason I say it is because actors have very low IQs. They're the dumbest people in every room they walk into. It's just a fact. Anyway, one of them, whoever he is, says that he would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. He thinks ruling in hell is freedom and serving in heaven is slavery. It is the exact inverse of the truth. It is Isaiah 5.20. More, more evidence that I am right about actors being the stupidest people that have ever lived. The evidence is overwhelming. Just watch. Will I get mail on this? I hope so. I mean, I'm trying my best. How can you be so negative and uncharitable? Mean. Certainly there's an actor out there that is not stupid. Certainly there must be. I don't think so. Prove me wrong. Anyway, I am frustrated, as you know, over time. This this society worshiping human beings because of their attractiveness. That is a mistake. When their contribution to society is at the lowest possible level, they are the court jesters equivalent of our society. They do not produce anything of value. You should not be attracted to them and you should not lust after them and seek their approval and all of this stuff. You should not do that. That is not wise and it is not healthy. Enough of that rant. Ownership of a human being, a living being, a living soul is evil. Genesis 14. Notice now what I bring up again. We go to Acts 5 because of Genesis 14. Now we have to go to Genesis 14 because of slavery. Why is that so? Because slavery is the first mentioned, if you will, We're back to Melchizedek, Abraham, and Satan in Genesis 14 because this is where slavery rears its head. Hard for me to say this with my (coughs) speech impediment. Shedolay Omer. And I usually add another ER to it. And I end up with Shedolay Omer. I can't get it out very well. But Shedolay Omer is a powerful king at Genesis 14. He gathers a massive military force. And he attacks kings that rebelled against him. And Chedorlaomer kills uh, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. That is not insignificant. Where are you now? You're now at Genesis 19. Eventually, you end up in the New Testament. Because there are New Testament equivalencies to Sodom and Gomorrah, as you know if you've been attending here. And Shedorlaomer takes captive of the people, including Lot and Lot's family. So he... He captures them and puts them into slavery. He becomes the owner of them. And this is the first mention of taking of a human being by force into captivity, slavery, and the ownership of one man by another man so that the former was reduced to the status of property. This is the first place it occurs in the Bible. Therefore, we always start there. Just like Acts 5. 
Remember, the great truth of Genesis 14 is that the Lord God Most High is the possessor of all things. I don't have time to read it again. Maybe I do. I will. Just because people will see this as slavery and they won't have looked at, listened to the... Uh, they won't have listened to the Acts 5 diversion or departure or walk through the trees that I did. Then Melchizedek, king of Satan, this is Genesis 14:18, king of Salem, which is king of peace. Melchizedek, king of peace. Who's that? Who's the king of peace? There's only one king of peace. There can't be more kings of peace. He is the king of Salam, Jerusalem. Jehovah provides peace. Jehovah Jireh, if you will. Jehovah Jireh Salam is Jerusalem. Then Melchizedek, king of Salam, Salem, brought out bread and wine. So he's going to have a communion service. The first mention of communion. When you see what Christ says about communion, back you are in Genesis 14. And he was the priest of the God Most High. So this is the priest of God. And he blessed God. He says, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Who can bless God? He also assigns God to be the possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high. There's, in case you missed it the first two times, here it is. Bang. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Who can, can you bless God? No, you can't. Long answer, no. You cannot bless God. Who can bless God? Only God. Melchizedek is God that makes him Christ. No question about it. He also is described in Hebrews 7 as having, as being outside of time. Well, there you go. Christ describes himself in Revelation uh, chapters 1 through 3 as being outside of time. There's your math. Transitive property. Back in geometry, you are. And he, Abraham, Abram, gave him a tithe. So Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, who is the priest of peace. I'm sorry, the uh, king of peace and the priest, uh, the high priest. He has both titles. He's the only person in the Bible who has both titles. And both titles, of course, the only person that has both titles is Christ himself. Now, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and take the goods for yourself. The king of Sodom has been killed by Sheddor Laomer earlier at uh, verse 10 of Genesis 14. So we have another king of uh, Sodom here. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heavens and earth, and I will take nothing from a, from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abraham rich, except only what the young men have eaten. Now there's your young men again, back to Acts 5. You are. Okay. This is the first mention, as I said, of a human being being forced into slavery. The first mention of ownership of one man by another man. The first time a man is reduced to the status of property. And again, the great truth of Genesis 14 is that the Lord God Most High is the possessor of all things. Men are things. 
Angels are things. He is the possessor of man and angels, of all living souls. And all living souls uh, include the animals. The animals are called living souls in Genesis. Nefesh Kaya, same as Adam is called. And he owns everything that is created. That's 200 sextillion stars. He owns them all. He has the deed. That is who God is. As the one who created all things, it's only logical that the creator is the owner of all the things he created. Who possibly could own anything that he created? And I should mention that Shedor Leomer is the first Antichrist figure in type in scripture. I think that will be obvious. If you don't think it's obvious, see me later uh, for more information on that. Satan is the... Second king of Sodom here in Genesis uh, 14, 21. And that becomes clear. He attempts to purchase the freed captives of Shedor Leomer. Satan wants them back. Shedor Leomer was simply a proxy for Satan, much like the Antichrist. Shedor Leomer is the first one to enslave people. They are freed by God and Abraham and his 318 highly trained servants. Highly trained in what? Military warfare or goat herding? In any event, they're shepherds. They become this amazing military force and they destroy a king who probably has a massive army of many, maybe, maybe hundreds of times more. The math is left open, but I'm suggesting that it was a massive army. How do I know that? Why do I think that? Because I've looked at the New Testament compliment. Satan would now own free men and women and women and children. And why does he Satan want to own them? What's his motive? Obviously, he wants to put them into slavery. Why is that? Abraham refuses and he declares Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, Christ himself. He declares Christ as the Lord God most high, the owner, the one who possesses the heavens and the earth. Notice that the earth is given this unique status from the heavens. From the 200 sextillion stars, I have one earth. See for me's paradox. Because that's what that is. Thank you. I see the hands. If you're new here, and I won't identify the one new person that's here. I won't look at them. Less. But there is one new person. They get to go first in the buffet, as you know. When it gets to this time in the uh, lecture, um, Terry tells me to stop. And she says, does this also means I've got ten minutes to go. Isn't that what it means? Because I stop. Please make him stop. It also means I have ten minutes. Which, of course, I can't keep track of time. That must mean what? About 45 more minutes. I've had people get up and leave when I've made that joke. It's hilarious. I'll keep making it. Fermi's paradox says if this is the only place that there is life out of 200 sextillion bodies out there, what is the implications of that? Here in the Bible, God separates out the earth from all of the other created things in the universe. Anyway, note the first attempt to corrupt the inherent authority of God over his living beings. The first attempt to do that is assigned to Satan. Satan seeks to own men 
to recapture the captives. Why? What's his motive? What do you suppose it is? It's identified in the Bible in Isaiah 14. What does he want to be? He wants to be like God. How is it to be like God to own somebody? Well, God is the owner. Obviously, slavery is a condition that reduces the free will of living souls in a physical realm. Slavery is an attack on the gift of existence. If you don't have free will, how is your existence doing? As you know, if you've been here, you cannot separate existence from free will. If you don't have free will, you don't have existence, and the inverse is true. You must have free will to have existence. And so I have this attack. And we'd expect that because that's exactly what he does in Genesis 3. He says to the woman, he says, uh, you will be like God, and he attacks existence. Just as an aside here, if there is no existence, if Satan's premise was correct, if there is no existence, then and God is faking existence, then uh, you have to ask the next logical step. And that would be, does God have the ability to give existence? And if he doesn't have the ability to give existence, then does God have existence himself? You can see the lie of Satan all encapsulized there as much as I can uh, uh, illustrate it. But it's obvious that Satan would attack existence on living souls. He would reduce them in a physical realm to a being that had very little free will. He would reduce their free will. What do we call that today? That's right, communism. Reducing people's free will has been going on for centuries. It started in Genesis 14, thousands of years. The fundamental of the satanic lie is that we living beings were not given existence, merely the illusion of existence, and therefore uh, our, me our lives, our, our thoughts are meaningless. And that's exactly the position of evolutionary atheism and its political ally, which is communism, which seizes and enslaves by force, as you know. Now, being that I'm almost out of time, let's open the discussion a little bit more here on slavery. Let's go quickly to Exodus 21, where that's where it's all at. Okay, I'll start this with verse 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. That's called the manslayer. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So if you kidnap somebody and sell them into slavery, what's the penalty? It is death. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Now let's go Deuteronomy 24. As it shows up again. You've got to find it. I'm a trained professional. Don't try this. You have phones. I have an analog system. Okay. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren or the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die and you shall put away the evil from among you. Those are the laws given to Israel by God through Moses. Anyone who kidnaps and sells a freeborn Israeli, execute them. You sell somebody into slavery, you execute them. 
Kidnapping, literally at its basis, is the stealing of another human being and the selling of that person into bondage. And it is a capital offense. Immediate, swift execution. Surely die. Whoa, does that sound familiar? Surely be put to death. It isn't no equivocation here. And I answered my question, didn't I? A violation, it is stealing. The ultimate stealing is stealing of another human being. What is the ultimate murder? What is the ultimate adultery? The ultimate adultery is worshiping a man as God. There's your Antichrist reference. That's the ultimate adultery. What is the ultimate stealing? It is selling somebody, stealing them. Selling a human being. The ultimate control. What is the ultimate control? Killing a human being. You start to look at those uh, Ten Commandments and say, what is the worst of stealing? What is the worst of killing? What is the worst? When you kill a child, that is the worst of all killing. You'd think somebody would know that. But stealing is uh, Exodus 2015. It's the Eighth Commandment. So the answer is, is slavery prohibited by the Bible? Absolutely it is. It is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. The first mention of Shirley and death is where? Genesis 2.17. There you go. You will surely die. So all of this is connected to Exodus 20, I'm sorry, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Omniscient God, through the agency of those he selected and endowed, wrote and transcribed the scriptures to cut to the chase. Did God remember that the first place he recorded the word surely die was in Genesis 2.17? Absolutely. Did he repeat them here at Exodus at the, at the Mount and the Ten Commandments? Because that's what the context is. Absolutely he did. The omniscient rememberer of all things. Does he remember that he wrote down surely die in Genesis 2.17 by the time he gets to Exodus 20? Can he remember what he said? Exodus 21.12 through 17. Are they connected directly to Genesis 2.17? Again, long answer. Yes. Therefore, Exodus 21.12 through 17 is bound to Genesis 2.17 and Genesis 3 where the first judicial sentence of death as God defines it, eternal death. He defines death as the second death. It's eternal in the book of Revelation. And that second death sentence is administered to Satan there in Genesis 3 for the attempted murder. Notice how I said that of Adam and Eve. The lying in treachery, premeditated, Satan sentenced to death there. At that trial of him in Genesis 3. Again, I'm intentionally commingling physical death and spiritual death. And I'm a religious expert. I'm allowed to say things in confusing ways. It's a privilege I take full advantage of. I have a card. That allows that. Note the language now in, uh, in Exodus uh, 2014, 21-14. The premeditation, the treachery, the lie and wait. And he says, you shall take that person from my altar. That's a description of Satan. The altar of God, Exodus 20, is a picture of Jesus Christ. My altar is Christ himself. Christ is simultaneously, simultaneously the altar of God, and he's the only sinless one. And therefore, he's the only one who can stand upon the altar of God. So he is the only one who can stand upon himself. 
Obviously, the statement, you shall take him from my altar that he may die, is one of great complexity. It's a sentence of death. It's very solemn. Now, the objection to Exodus 21.16 and Deuteronomy 24.7, and this is for the Internet people more than you guys, is that it is limited to the Israelites. In other words, Hebrews received protections in the law that non-Hebrews did not, they say. But that can't be so, because I can go to 2021. If a man beats his male or female servant with a rod that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. In other words, if you beat your slave and he dies, you shall surely be punished. What's that word again? Uh-oh. Genesis 2.17. What's the punishment, do you suppose? Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is property. Okay, people get confused by that. Because they don't put it back in context. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, but yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished. What do you think the punishment is? Careful, that's really confusing. Accordingly, as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determined. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for worn. Wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of the eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. So I have a bracket in here. Verse 20 and verse 26. Bracket Lex Talonis. You familiar with Lex Talonis? The most who read that casually... They seem they think that this sanctions cruelty and slavery and murder. It appears that a Hebrew can beat a male or female slave to the point of death and escape consequences as long as the slave dies after a couple of days. It actually says under his hand. If a man kills somebody under his hand so that he dies under his hand. One or, one or two days, death one or two days later. See, I have a difference between under his hand and death that is not considered under his hand. So that's how that's to be resolved. Don't have time to do it today, but you can start thinking about it and figure it out. Let us begin with the man who beats his servant to death under his hand. And the man who does this is going to be executed. He will surely die. You beat your slave to death, you die. You're immediately executed. Genesis 21, 12, 15, 16, 17. Surely be punished is connected to surely be put to death, which is surely die. Exodus 21, 22 through 25 is the famous Lex Talinus, the principle of retaliation, which was and still remains unbelievably extraordinary because it is eye for eye. It is tooth for tooth. It is life for life. It is not vengeance. It's what? Equality. It's fairness. It is not life for tooth. It is not life for eye. The price paid must have equivalence with the harm inflicted. Again, there's this bracketing of these slaves, of a man beating the slave, and then Lex Talonis is in the middle. The principle is established there. And we know through history that this was never practiced, this eye for eye, a tooth for tooth. 
Israel alone had this principle, God-given. The norm in the world then and today in kingdoms is the totalitarian regimes, hugely disproportionate retaliation. It's life for what here in this country almost? We're getting there. We'll kill you because of what? You say. People are losing their jobs over what they say 30 years ago. The Bible changed the world in those days. The evil that per- permeated justice, Lex Talonis, specifically restricted and limited the authority of a slave owner over the slave. The slave owner would be executed for killing a slave. That's unprecedented in the world at that time. Slaves immediately were freed for the sake of a tooth. You knocked out a tooth, slave is gone. Obviously, Exodus 20, 21, or 20 through 21 is not to be isolated from Exodus 21, 18 through 19. There's an and there. And if a man beats his male. Well, that takes you back to men. If men contend with each other and one strikes the other in the stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again, walks outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall be provided for him to be thoroughly healed. So the and, the beating of the male or female servant, is tied back here with treachery, lying in wait. Clearly, slavery in Israel was very, very different from slavery elsewhere, including the history of this country. In Israel, Hebrews, Israelites voluntarily submitted to slavery. They chose to remain in slavery. That's Exodus 21, 1 through 11. That's this amazing, complex picture of Christ is Exodus 21, 1 through 11. Christ assigns slavery to himself there. That's very difficult to figure out. And that's what we will do next week. Congratulations on your ability to withstand that. And stay awake. It was amazing. Very impressive.